It is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord and to sing praises unto your name, O Lord Most High. Psalm 92 and verse 1. It is good to be able to praise the Lord. It is good to be able to worship God and to uh, exhort and to build up one another, to give one another encouragement. It is good for us to be able to to turn our attention unto things spiritual, to remove the cares and the anxieties of life from our mind, at least for a short time. I suppose before we begin, I would like to just say uh, very, very quickly, just quickly by way of reminder, I realize as well as all of you and uh, the things that are going on in our world and have been watching as you have too, and I suppose the thing to say is just to be mindful of the fact that there are no answers for the world's problems in the world. The answer to the world's problem always has been and always will be the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're very well aware that the Bible teaches a great number of things. Just last week, you may remember, we studied the great Christian ethic of love Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, Jesus said, and love your neighbor as yourself. We talked about this great Christian ethic being love for God and love for our fellow man and love for ourself. That's what the gospel teaches. That's what the Bible teaches, and that's what humanity needs to hear. And so I suppose that I would just say this, and then we'll leave it here for the time being. Let me just encourage all of us as we process the goings-on in our world to view these things and process them not through the lens of maybe politics or some worldly answer, but through the lens of the gospel, of the New Testament, of Jesus Christ, and how the gospel will deal and can deal with the problems of the world, that we might not only view them from that lens, but that we might all individually take steps to be able to approach them in that way as well, in a way that honors God and in a way that exalts his son, Jesus Christ. Now, some have said that marriage is like a house. With every year that goes by, another piece is added, another brick is laid, another nail is hammered until finally, after over time, it becomes a masterpiece. Someone else has said that marriage is like a work of art. It's like a sculpture that is very carefully molded over time. But in the case of Nehemiah, we're going to say today that marriage is like a wall. There are two passages. Seth read read them for us just a moment ago that I want us to think about this morning and base our thoughts upon. And believe it or not, we only have two main points today. Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, and Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 43. Now, one of these passages reminds us of the importance of exalting work, and the other one reminds us of the importance in rejoicing in that work. Now, you may remember, just to set the stage, the scene, the context for the book of Nehemiah, that we find ourselves, when we arrive here, at the end of the 70-year Babylonian captivity. The uh, The Babylonians have now fallen, and the Persians have taken over, 
And God then, uh, I should say rather, the uh, children of Israel are released from Babylon. They go home and they go home under Ezra to rebuild the temple and they go home under Nehemiah to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. When we arrive in Nehemiah chapter 6, we find ourselves in the midst of this great rebuilding project and we find a chapter in which Nehemiah and the children of Israel will deal with the challenges that are posed to that building project. When we arrive in Nehemiah chapter 12, we find ourselves at the end of the building project. The wall has now been completed and that chapter deals with its dedication. Now what we're going to do is simply take some statements from these two contexts and admittedly take them out of their context just a little bit because I think that there is some application that can be found from some of the statements in these two passages that will help us uh, as it pertains to our marriages. So let's start in the first one. Nehemiah chapter 6 verses 1 to 3 and our first point simply is this that we need to remember and we need to learn how to exalt in the work of marriage. Or I should say it this way, simply exalt the work of marriage. And I said it that way on purpose, the work of marriage, because marriage is, after all, work. It's not easy work, it's hard work, but it's good work. Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, as we mentioned a few moments ago, Sanballat and Tobiah now are challenging Nehemiah and the children of Israel in their rebuilding project. They intend to cause Nehemiah some problems, and that's why they seek to call him away from the project, to call him away from the wall. But I want you to notice in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse number 3, what it is that Nehemiah says to them. I sent messengers unto them, saying, Here it is, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and come down to you? In other words, the work that I am currently engaged in, Sanballat and Tobiah, is of such great importance. In fact, it is of much greater importance than anything that you might have going on in your mind. And so there is no reason for me to leave this great work so that the progress stops to go then and deal with whatever it is you have to deal with. I want you to take that statement with me now just for a few moments and let's apply it to marriage. The work that we're doing is great. Marriage is work. As we said, it is hard work, but it is good work. Marriage is the creation of one from two. Remember Matthew chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Jesus takes our mind back to the first two chapters of the book of Genesis to the institution, the design, the creation of the family. And he says in those two passages that a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and those two will become one flesh. It is the creation of one from two. It is the blending of two personalities. First Peter chapter 3 and verse number 7, the apostle Peter talks about the man and the wife and their differences. It is a relationship of sacrifice and devotion. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. Remember the Apostle Paul talks about the responsibility for wives to submit to their husbands and to honor them, but also for husbands to love their wives and to honor them, to sacrifice and provide and protect and so on. And if you think about these three things, 
the idea of one being created from two and a blending of personalities and sacrifice and devotion, it's no surprise then that we might describe marriage as work. Hard work, yes, but good work and work nonetheless. What does the Bible tell us? What does the Bible tell us about the importance of how we view our marriage? Because we're talking about, of course, viewing marriage as work. What I, what I want us to realize this morning is this, that our concept influences our conduct. Let that simmer for a moment. Our concept influences our conduct. Why do you suppose it's the case that Nehemiah said, no, Sanballat and Tobiah, I am not going to uh, go and meet with you? Part of it was because he knew what they were up to, but the other part was because of his concept of the work. What did he say about it? This is a good work. This is a great work. And this work cannot cease just for you. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse number 27, as uh, Moses speaks to the children of Israel before they uh, are preparing to cross over the Jordan and go into the promised land. This, of course, is the second generation. The first generation wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and they died. But to the second generation, Moses reminds them of the first generation. And here's what he says. In Deuteronomy 1 verse 27, he says the reason why the first generation of Israelites rebelled against God, they said, you hated us. What? That was their concept of God. They thought God hated them, and so the Bible says their answer was, you hated us, and therefore we rebelled. That's the idea of it. Notice that concept influences conduct. What about Matthew 25 and verse 24? This is the parable of the talents. This is the latter part of the parable. And this is the occasion in which the master is uh, speaking to each of the servants about what they did with their talents. And to the one talent man, Matthew chapter 25 and verse 24, as the master asks him why it was that he went and hid his talent, he says, because I judged you to be a fearful man, and so therefore I was afraid, and I hid my talent. Now, when we study the parable, we understand that really that was not an appropriate way for him to be thinking whatsoever. But again, notice the point. A concept influences conduct. The Proverbs writer said in Matthew, or excuse me, Proverbs 23 and verse 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 that murders and adultery and theft and lie and all of those types of things, they come from the heart. He says what's in the man, what's inside a man, that's what defiles him. All of these passages serve to emphasize our point. Concept influences conduct. Now how do you conceive of marriage? How do you view marriage in general? How do you view your marriage in particular? Some folks view marriage as a weariness, like the children of Israel in Malachi 1 and verse number 13, who viewed worship as a weariness. Some folks view marriage as drudgery. Some folks dread the idea. But our view, our concept of marriage must be high, yea, very high, because continuing in a work that is difficult is not easy. Judges chapter 8, verse number 4 and verse 5. 
just for a moment, what does the Bible say about marriage as far as how we are to view it? How does the Bible describe marriage? Well, the Bible describes marriage, just to name a few things. The Bible describes marriage as a gift. In Proverbs chapter 19 and verse number 14, the Proverbs writer, speaking of marriage, makes this statement. He says, houses and riches are the inheritance of fathers, and a prudent wife is from the Lord. And in the same uh, section of that book, Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 22, the Proverbs writer says, Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing and obtains the favor of the Lord. How does God describe marriage in these two passages? He describes it as something that is good. He describes it as something that is favorable. He describes it as a good thing and as a gift from God. And we should view it accordingly. In Proverbs chapter 12 and verse number 4, the Proverbs writer says again about marriage the following. A virtuous woman is a crown to her husband, but she that makes uh, ashamed is as rottenness in his bones. Now this passage contextually is connected all the way back to chapter 11 verse 28 and 29, which says, He that trusts in his riches shall fall, but the righteous will flourish as a branch. He that troubles his own house will inherit the wind, and the fool shall be... Uh, servant of the wise of heart. And so the point of Proverbs 12 and verse 4 contextually is this, that a man should focus on building a good family much more than he should focus on making as much money and building up as much wealth as possible. What does this passage tell us about marriage and how we should view it? Proverbs chapter 12 and verse number 4, that it is a crown, that it makes one royal, if you will. Proverbs 21 and verse number 20 describes marriage in this way. There is treasure to be desired and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man spins it up. Listen, wealth is to be found in marriage. Honor is found in marriage. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 4. Marriage is held in honor among all uh, but the, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Concept influences conduct. The Bible tells us that when we think about marriage, we're to think of it as a gift that we're to think about it as something that is good, that we're to think about it as a crown and something that brings real wealth, something that is honorable. How do you view your marriage? Let me ask you this question by way of application. What great changes do you suppose would come about in our world and in our families and in the church of Jesus Christ if every person began to view marriage in this way? If every person began to see it as a work that is to be exalted and to be held in great esteem and in high honor, here are just a few thoughts. Number one, we would undoubtedly see our divorce rate go down. Number two, we would undoubtedly see a change in the mentality of many people where marriage would not be viewed as something that takes away freedom and individuality but rather marriage would be viewed as something that God created for mankind to enjoy. Number three, people would be healthier. Studies actually show that those in happy marriages tend to live longer, that they have fewer strokes and heart attacks, and that they have a lower rate of depression. Number four, the home and society would no doubt improve with godly marriages made up of people who are dedicated to building them and to viewing them in exactly the same way that God does. 
Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse number 3, Sanballat and Tobiah, I will not, I cannot go to you because I am doing a great work and there is no reason that this great work should suffer. Exalting in marriage. It's all about understanding that it's work, yes, but it's also understanding that it is a great work, that is an honor, that it's a good thing, a wonderful thing, uh, something created by God for the benefit of mankind. And we must learn to exalt it and see it the same way that God does. Number two, look at Nehemiah chapter 12 now in verse number 43. The wall has been completed, and in Nehemiah chapter 12, everyone has gathered together for the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. Nehemiah 12 and verse number 27. And at the end of this chapter, in Nehemiah chapter 12 and verse number 43, here's what we read. Also that day they offered great sacrifices and they rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The wives also and the children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard even afar off. Notice anything in particular about that particular verse? There is a five-fold statement of joy in one verse, Nehemiah 12 and verse 43. Five times the emphasis is put on rejoicing. And in what are we rejoicing? Nehemiah 12 and verse 43. We're rejoicing in the fact that all of Israel between Nehemiah chapter 4 and Nehemiah chapter 12 has come together as one unified whole and with blood and with sweat and with tears and with prayer and faith in God, they have all worked day and night and they have finished this great task. They're rejoicing in their work. As it pertains to our marriages, we have to recognize that if we're going to first view it and understand and exalt it as a great work, that we must also learn to rejoice in that work. In fact, Proverbs chapter 5 and verse number 18 not only says that we should rejoice in our marriage, it actually tells us that, it, well, it's commanded, that God expects us to rejoice in marriage, to look at it not with dread, but to look at it with joy. Proverbs 5 and verse 16 says, Let your fountains uh, excuse me, be uh, dispersed abroad and uh, rivers of water in the street. Let them be uh, only yours and not the strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. And then Solomon will say in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 9 in verse number 9, the same thing about how we're to rejoice in our marriage. Live joyfully with the wife whom you lovest all the days of the life of your vanity, which he's given you under the sun, he says. But listen, there are some things that we need to understand about joy in general and even in particular as they apply to marriage. Number one, joy is not without its difficulties. Think about the book, these two passages that we've taken just this morning, the book of Nehemiah. They are rejoicing in Nehemiah chapter 12, but they're struggling in Nehemiah chapter 6 and in Nehemiah chapter 7. Think about Israel just in general, even going back further in their history. Israel arrives in Egypt at the end of the book of Genesis, and at the beginning of the book of Exodus, they are struggling in captivity, but they eventually will be delivered by Moses, and uh, after a 40-year wilderness wandering, will arrive in the land of Canaan. Israel struggled, struggled in Egypt before the joy of their deliverance. Persecution. Persecution is difficult, but the Bible tells us that persecution leads to joy. 
Matthew 5 and verse number 4, blessed are those who mourn. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse number 10, godly sorrow brings repentance unto salvation that is not to be repented of. A general truth about joy is that joy is not without its difficulties. And now, as it pertains specifically to marriage, we recognize as well that marriage has its difficulties too. But just like we see the people of God in the book of Nehemiah working together to deal with their problems and to overcome their struggles and to finish their work so that they may rejoice in it, so in marriage we work through our difficulties together. And we rejoice together in what we build with the help of our God. Joy is preceded by difficulty. Or joy rather comes with its difficulties. Second, joy is preceded by some things. Joy is preceded by things like commitment and labor and encouragement and sacrifice, cooperation and dedication. We see this all throughout God's word. Philippians chapter 1, verse 4 to 6. The Apostle Paul, in the opening verses of his letter to this congregation, he states to them that he is constantly expressing his thanksgiving and his joy to God on their part in prayer because of their cooperation with him in the gospel. Paul rejoiced and had joy at the thought of the brethren in Philippi because they worked together with him. Do you suppose there's any application of that to our marriages? Is it, does joy come as a result of a husband and wife working together and cooperating together? Or is joy a result of two people who are disunified and who are not on the same page and who, instead of working together, work against one another? There's joy in cooperation. How about 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse number 7? The Apostle Paul wrote to this congregation and said, Not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoiced the more. What gave Paul an exceedingly great reason to rejoice, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse number 7? It was the knowledge of the fact that these brethren, he says had a fervent mind toward him. That's care and compassion. Paul is rejoicing in the care and compassion that existed between him and these brethren in Corinth as it pertains to our marriage. Where is joy found? Is it found in a marriage and in a home and in a relationship where husband and wife care for one another and where they love one another and where they are constantly showing tenderness and compassion to one another? Or is it the opposite? Is joy found in two people who don't care for one another and who treat one another inappropriately and speak unkindly to one another? Joy is found in care and compassion. What about sacrifice? Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 1 and 2, the Bible tells us that uh, wherefore seeing as we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every sin and the weight which does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us looking unto Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him the Bible says he despised not the shame I want you to think for just a moment about everything that our Lord endured the shame and the scourging and the mocking and the pain 
the sacrifice that he endured on our behalf. And then take Hebrews 12, verse 2, and connect it with Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 32. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church. You see, we see the, the passages in God's word that tell us about the great sacrifice that our Lord uh, gave forth on our behalf and then realize that the Bible takes all of those passages, those principles, that great truth of our Lord's sacrifice and makes application of that to the church and to our homes and to our marriages and tells us that we are to sacrifice for one another as our Lord sacrificed for us. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, you remember these first four verses in this great chapter that deal with humble service. If there, Paul says, be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Joy is found, Philippians 2, verses 1 to 4, in selflessness, in sacrifice, in dedication and devotion to the other. And in our marriages, joy is found when we have two people who love one another so much that they're willing to sacrifice themselves for the other. That they're willing to put themselves last so that they may put the other first. That true, selfless, agape, sacrificial love is found in that relationship so that each one sees to the greatest need and the benefit of the other. And when that kind of sacrifice and love exists between a husband and a wife, then real joy will be found. Joy is preceded by commitment and cooperation and care and compassion and sacrifice and dedication. The Bible tells us that we can rejoice in our marriages when we selflessly devote ourselves to our spouse. When our spouse becomes the most important person in this world to us. When our spouse becomes our closest friend and when we grow to love one another more and when we treasure one another's company, then we rejoice in our marriage. The Bible tells us that we rejoice in our marriage when we build a great marriage upon the foundation of a great God. Notice Nehemiah 1 verse 5, Nehemiah 6 3, and Nehemiah 12 43. In Nehemiah 1 and verse 5, before Nehemiah ever begins to set his mind toward the work of rebuilding the wall, he bows his knee to God and he acknowledges him as being the great and being the powerful God. And all throughout the book, he reminds the children of Israel, we are doing a great work because we have a great God and he'll bless us in doing it. The same principle applies to our marriages. Sometimes marriage can be difficult. There's no question about that. But we must recognize that the same God who spoke this universe into existence and crafted the plan of salvation and sent his son as the sacrifice for sin, for the sin of all humanity, that that God, that same God, is the one who has created us and who has designed marriage and who has said time and again throughout his word that if we'll pattern our lives and our marriages in accordance with his will, that he will bless them and he will provide them and then there will be great joy because of it. Nehemiah 12 and verse 43. We can rejoice in our marriages when we work together to build them and make them great. 
I invite your attention to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3. It's one of those passages that we can read over quickly, but it's important. Paul describes three things about the brethren at Thessalonica. Three things that are worthy of note for our lives as Christians and for our marriages. He describes their work of faith. He describes their labor of love. And he describes their patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to note together in that passage, that work that comes from faith and labor that comes from love and patience that come from hope, comes from hope, that these three, these three things are describing not individual people out on their own little island doing their own thing, but this is describing the collective effort of the congregation as a whole. Brothers and sisters, in, in our marriages, when we love one another and when we work together, this labor, this work that comes from our love, God will bless that and we can work together to build a great marriage and we can rejoice in it. We must learn to exalt it because it's great, Nehemiah 6.3, but we must also learn to rejoice in it, Nehemiah 12 and verse 43. We need to recognize that joy can be attained. It can be attained in our lives by our submission to the gospel of Jesus Christ and its application to our lives, and it can be attained in our marriages in the same way. But not only can joy be attained, joy can also be maintained. The Bible tells us in John 10 and verse 10 that Jesus came to, bring, to give life and to give it more abundantly. There is no greater life, there is no better life than the life of a faithful child of God. That's where true joy is found and marriage is the same way. Joy can be attained, joy can be maintained in our marriages and in our homes by applying the teachings of God's word. But listen, joy can also be reclaimed. It is possible. In fact, it happens sometimes. A person, joy seems to go away because for whatever reason, our, our eyes are turned away from the goal. Our eyes are turned away from the cross. But we can refocus our vision with the cross and with heaven in view and joy can be reclaimed in our lives. It can also be reclaimed in our marriages as well. Maybe, maybe, you, maybe there is, it is the case that a marriage gets to a point where the joy is no longer to be found. And the world, unfortunately, in those cases, at least some in the world, would have us to think that when joy is no longer to be found in marriage, that means perhaps the marriage needs to end or that the two people are not compatible. But God says that that joy can be reclaimed. God says that if two people will turn their lives over to the Lord and to His will and that they will focus their attention, that they will focus their eyes and their vision toward the cross, that joy can be found again. I think about the parable of the prodigal son, really the older brother in Luke chapter 15. The father was in sorrow when his son, uh, the father was in sorrow when his son left the son was in sorrow whenever he found himself in the pig pen, but when he returned home, both of them rejoiced. The son rejoiced in being found safe and comfortable within the father's embrace, and the father rejoiced in the fact that the son had come home. Joy may be lost, but it can be found. The Lord's invitation is offered this morning. If, you, if it is the case 
this morning that you find yourself in a situation where you are separated from God without joy and without hope in this world. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 12 and following. Then there is good news because the Bible says that the gospel is for all people. And the Bible says that God calls all people through the gospel to obedience. Believing in the deity of Jesus Christ and repenting of sin and confessing faith, being immersed in water for the forgiveness of sin, the Lord will add you to the church today. Maybe you're a Christian. Maybe as you think about your life and you think about your marriage, you recognize that it's not what it should be, that the joy is gone. It can come back. It can be reclaimed. And if we can help you to do it this morning... In any way at all, we invite you to come forward and let that be known while we stand and sing the invitation song together.